Section 2 of The Singing Bone, or The Adventures of Dr. Thorndyke, by R. Austin Freeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mechanism of Detection Related by Christopher Jervis, M.D. The singular circumstances that attended the death of Mr. Oscar Brodsky, the well-known diamond merchant of Hatton Garden, illustrated very forcibly the importance of one or two points in medico-legal practice which Thorndyke was accustomed to insist were not sufficiently appreciated. What those points were, I shall leave my friend and teacher to state the proper place, and meanwhile, as the case is in the highest degree instructive, I shall record the incidents in the order of their occurrence. The dusk of an October evening was closing in as Thorndyke and I, the sole occupants of a smoking compartment, found ourselves approaching the little station of Ludham, and as the train slowed down, we peered out at the knot of country people who were waiting on the platform. Suddenly Thorndyke exclaimed, in a tone of surprise, "'Why, that is surely Boscovich!' And almost at the same moment a brisk, excitable little man darted at the door of our compartment, and literally tumbled in. "'I hope I don't intrude on this learned conclave,' he said, shaking hands genially, and banging his Gladstone with impulsive violence into the rack. "'But I saw your faces at the window, and naturally jumped at the chance of such pleasant companionship. "'You're very flattering,' said Thorndyke. "'So flattering that you leave us nothing to say. "'But what in the name of fortune are you doing at? "'What's the name of this place? Ludham? "'My brother has a little place a mile or so from here, "'and I've been spending a couple of days with him,' Mr. Boscovich explained. "'I shall change at Badgham Junction and catch the boat train to Amsterdam. "'But whither are you two bound? "'I see you have your mysterious little green box up on the outrack, "'so I infer that you are on some romantic quest, eh? "'Going to unravel some dark and intricate crime?' "'No,' replied Thorndyke. We're bound for Warmington on a quite prosaic errand. I'm instructed to watch the proceedings at an inquest there tomorrow on behalf of the Griffin Line Insurance Office, and we are travelling down tonight, as it is rather a cross-country journey. Why the box of magic? asked Boscovich, glancing up at the hat-rack. I never go away from home without it, answered Thorndyke. One never knows what may turn up. The trouble of carrying it is small when set off against the comfort of having appliances at hand in an emergency. Boscovich continued to stare up at the little square case covered with Wilsden canvas. Presently he remarked, I often used to wonder what you had in it when you were down at Chelmsford in connection with that bank murder. What an amazing case that was, by the way. Didn't your methods of research astonish the police? As he still looked up wistfully at the case, Thorndyke good-naturedly lifted it down and unlocked it. As a matter of fact, he was rather proud of his portable laboratory, and suddenly it was a triumph of condensation, for as small as it was, only a foot square by four inches deep, it contained a fairly complete outfit for a preliminary investigation. Wonderful! exclaimed Boscovich, when the case lay open before him, displaying its rows of little regent bottles, tiny test tubes, diminutive spirit lamp, dwarf microscope, and assorted instruments on the same Lilliputian scale. It's like a doll's house. Everything looks as if it was seen through the wrong end of a telescope. But are these tiny things really efficient? That microscope now. Perfectly efficient at low and moderate magnifications, said Thorndyke. It looks like a toy, but it isn't one. The lenses are the best that can be had. Of course, a full-size instrument would be infinitely more convenient, but I shouldn't have it with me. I should have to make shift with a pocket lens, and so with the rest of the undersized appliances, they are the alternative to no appliances. Boscovich pored over the case and its contents, fingering the instrument delicately, and asking questions innumerable about their uses. Indeed, his curiosity was but half appeased when half an hour later the train began to slow down. "'By Jove!' he exclaimed, starting up and seizing his bag. "'Here we are at the junction already. You change here, don't you?' "'Yes,' replied Thorndyke. "'We take the branch train on to Warmington.' As we stepped out onto the platform, we became aware that something unusual was happening, or had happened. All the passengers and most of the porters and the supernumeraries were gathered at one end of the station, and all were looking intently into the darkness down the line. "'Anything wrong?' asked Mr. Boscovich, addressing the station inspector. "'Yes, sir,' the official replied. "'A man has been run over by the goods train about a mile down the line. Station-master has gone down with a stretcher to help him bring him in. And I expect that is his lantern that you see coming this way.' As we stood watching the dancing light grow momentarily brighter, flashing fitful reflections from the burnished rails, a man came out of the booking-office and joined the group of onlookers. He attracted my attention, as I afterwards remembered, for two reasons. In the first place his round, jolly face was excessively pale, and bore a strained and wild expression, and in the second, though he stared into the darkness with eager curiosity, he asked no questions. The swinging lantern continued to approach, and then suddenly two men came into sight bearing a stretcher, covered with a tarpaulin, 
through which the shape of a human figure was dimly discernible. They ascended the slope to the platform, and proceeded with their burden to the lamp-room, when the inquisitive gaze of the passengers was transferred to a porter, who followed, carrying a handbag, an umbrella, and to the station-master, who brought up the rear with his lantern. As the porter passed, Mr. Boscovich started forward with sudden excitement. "'Is that his umbrella?' he asked. "'You yes, sure?' answered the porter, stopping and holding out for the speaker's inspection. "'My God!' ejaculated Boscovich. Then, turning sharply to Thorndyke, he explained, "'That's Brodsky's umbrella. I could swear it. You remember Brodsky?' Thorndyke nodded, and Boscovich, turning once more to the porter, said, "'I identify that umbrella. It belongs to a gentleman named Brodsky. If you look at his hat, you will see his name written in it. He always writes his name in his hat.' "'We haven't found his hat yet,' said the porter. "'But here's the station-master.' He turned to his superior and announced, "'This gentleman, sir, has identified the umbrella.' "'Oh,' said the station-master, "'you recognise the umbrella, do you?' Then perhaps you would step into the lamp-room and see if you can identify the body. Mr. Boscovich recoiled with a look of alarm. Is it... is he very much injured? he asked nervously. Why, well, yes, was the reply. You see, the engine and six of the trucks went over him before they could stop the train. Took his head clean off, in fact. Shocking, shocking, gasped Boscovich. I think if you don't mind, I'd rather, I'd rather not. You don't think it necessary, Doctor, do you? "'Yes, I do,' replied Thorndyke. "'Early identification may be of the first importance.' "'And I suppose I must,' said Boscovich, and with extreme reluctance he followed the station-master to the lamp-room, as the loud ringing of the bell announced the approach of the boat-train. His inspection must have been of the briefest, for in a few moments he burst out, pale and awe-stricken, and rushed up to Thorndyke. "'It is!' he exclaimed breathlessly. "'It's Brodsky! Poor old Brodsky! Horrible! Horrible!' I was to have met him and come with me to Amsterdam. Had he any merchandise about him? Thorndyke asked, and as he spoke, the stranger whom I had previously noticed edged up closer as if to catch the reply. He had some stones, no doubt, answered Boscovich. I don't know what they were. His clerk will know, of course. By the way, doctor, could you watch the case for me, just to be sure it really was an accident, or, you know what? We're old friends, you know, fellow townsmen, too. We were both born in Warsaw. I'd like you to give an eye to the case. Very well, said Thorndyke. I will satisfy myself that there is nothing more than appears, and let you have a report. Will that do? Thank you, said Boscovich. It's excessively good of you, Doctor. Oh, here comes the train. I hope it won't inconvenience you to stay and see to the matter. Not in the least, replied Thorndyke. We are not due at Warmington until tomorrow afternoon, and I expect we can find out all that is necessary to know, and still keep our appointment. As Thorndyke spoke, the stranger, who had kept close to us with the evident purpose of hearing what was said, bestowed on him a very curious and attentive look, and it was only when the train had actually come to rest by the platform that he hurried away to find a compartment. No sooner had the train left the station than Thorndyke sought out the station-master, and informed him of the instructions that he had received from Boscovich. "'Of course,' he added in conclusion, "'we must not move in the matter until the police arrive. I suppose they have been informed.' "'Yes,' replied the station-master. "'I'll send a message at once to Chief Constable, "'and I expect him or an inspector at any moment. "'In fact, I think I'll slip out of the approach and see if he's coming.' "'He evidently wished to have a word in private with the police officer "'before committing himself to any statement. "'As the official departed, Thorndyke and I began to pace the now empty platform, "'and my friend, as was his wont, when entering on a new inquiry, "'meditatively reviewed the features of the problem. "'In a case of this kind,' he remarked, "'we have to decide one of three possible explanations, accident, suicide, or homicide, and our decision will be determined by inferences from three sets of facts. First, the general facts of the case. Second, the special data obtained by examination of the body, and third, the special data obtained by examining the spot on which the body was found. Now, the only general facts at present in our possession are that the deceased was a diamond merchant making a journey for a specific purpose, and probably having on his person property of small bulk and great value. These facts are somewhat against the hypothesis of suicide, and somewhat favourable to that of homicide. Facts relevant to the question of accident would be the existence, or otherwise, of a level crossing, a road or path leading to the line, an enclosing fence, with or without a gate, and any other facts rendering probable or otherwise the accidental presence of the deceased at the spot where the body was found. As we do not possess these facts, it is desirable that we extend our knowledge. "'Why not put a few discreet questions to the porter who brought in the bag and umbrella?' I suggested. 
He is at this moment in earnest conversation with the ticket collector, and would no doubt be glad of a new listener. An excellent suggestion, Jervis, answered Thorndyke. Let us see what he has to tell us. We approached the porter, and found him, as I had anticipated, bursting to unburden himself of the tragic story. The way the thing happened, sir, was this, he said in answer to Thorndyke's question. There was a sharpish bend in the road, just at that place, and the goods train was just rounding the curve, when the driver suddenly caught sight of something lying across the rails. As the engine turned, the headlight shone on it, and then he saw it was a man. He shut off steam at once, blew his whistle, put the brakes down hard, but as you know, sir, a goods train takes some stopping before they could bring her up. The engine and half a dozen trucks had gone over the poor beggar. Could the driver see how the man was lying? Thorndyke asked. Yes, he could see him quite plain, because the headlights were full on him. He was lying on his face with his neck over the near rail on the down side. His head was in the forefoot and his body by the side of the track. It looked as if he had laid himself out of purpose. Is there a level crossing thereabouts? asked Thorndyke. No, sir, no crossing, no road, no path, no nothing, said the porter, ruthlessly sacrificing grammar to emphasis. He must have come across the fields and climbed over the fence to get into the permanent way. Deliberate suicide is what it looks like. How did you learn all this? Thorndyke inquired. While the driver, you see, sir, when him and his mate had lifted the body off the track, went on the next signal box and sent his report by telegram. The station master told me all about it as we walked down the line. Thorndyke thanked the man for his information, and as we strolled back towards the lamp room, discussed the bearing of these new facts. Our friend is unquestionably right in one respect, he said. This was not an accident. The man might, if he were near-sighted, deaf or stupid, have climbed over the fence and got knocked down by the train but his position lying across the rails can only be explained by one of two hypotheses. Either it was, as Porter says, deliberate suicide, or else the man was already dead or insensible. We must leave it at that until we have seen the body, that is, if the police will allow us to see it. But here comes the station-master and an officer with him. Let us hear what they have to say. The two officials had evidently made up their minds to decline any outside assistance. The divisional surgeon would make the necessary examination and information could be obtained through the usual channels. The production of Thorndyke's card, however, somewhat altered the situation. The police inspector hummed and hawed irresolutely with his card in his hand, but finally agreed to allow us to view the body, and we entered the lamp room together, the station-master leading the way to turn up the gas. The stretcher stood on the floor by one wall, its grim burden still hidden by the tarpaulin, and the handbag and umbrella lay on a large box, together with the battered frame of a pair of spectacles from which the glasses had fallen out. "'Were these spectacles found by the body?' Thorndyke inquired. "'Yes,' replied the station-master. "'They were close to the head, and the glass was scattered about on the ballast.' Thorndyke made a note in his pocket-book, and then, as the inspector removed the tarpaulin, he glanced down on the corpse, lying limply on the structure, and looking grotesquely horrible, with its displaced head and distorted limbs. For fully a minute he remained silently stooping over the uncanny object, on which the inspector was now throwing the light of a large lantern. Then he stood up and said quietly to me, I think we can eliminate two out of the three hypotheses. The inspector looked at him quickly and was about to ask a question, when his attention was diverted by the travelling case which Thorndyke had laid on a shelf, and now opened to abstract a couple of pairs of dissecting forceps. We've no authority to make a post-mortem, you know, said the inspector. No, of course not, said Thorndyke. I'm merely going to look into the mouth. With one pair of forceps, he turned back the lip, and, having scrutinised its inner surface, closely examined the teeth. "'May I trouble you for your lens, Jervis?' he said, and as I handed him my doublet ready opened, the inspector brought the lantern close to the dead face and leaned forward eagerly. In his usual systematic fashion, Thorndyke slowly passed the lens along the whole range of sharp, uneven teeth, and then, bringing it back to the centre, examined with more minuteness the upper incisors. At length, very delicately, he picked out with his forceps some minute object from between two of the upper front teeth, and held it in the focus of the lens. Anticipating his next move, I took a labelled microscope slide from the case and handed it to him, together with a dissecting needle, and as he transferred the object to the slide and spread it out with a needle, I set up the little microscope on the shelf. A drop of furant and a cover-glass, please, Jervis, said Thorndyke. I handed him the bottle, and when he had let a drop of the mountain fluid fall gently on the object and put on the cover-slip, he placed the slide on the stage of the microscope, and examined it attentively. Happening to glance at the inspector, I observed on his countenance a faint grin, which he politely strove to suppress when he caught my eye. 
I was uh, thinking, sir, he said apologetically, it's a bit of a trap to be finding out what he had for dinner. He didn't die of unwholesome feeding. Thorndyke looked up with a smile. It doesn't do, Inspector, to assume that anything is off the track in an inquiry of this kind. Every fact must have some significance, you know. I don't see any significance in the dart of a man who has had his head calf, the inspector rejoined defiantly. Don't you? said Thorndyke. Is there no interest attaching to the last meal of a man who has met a violent death? These crumbs, for instance, that are scattered over the dead man's waistcoat, can we learn nothing from them? I don't see what you can learn, was the dogged rejoinder. Thorndyke picked off the crumbs one by one with his forceps, and having deposited them on a slide, inspected them first with the lens and then through the microscope. I learn, said he, that shortly before his death the deceased partook of some kind of wholemeal biscuits, apparently composed partly of oatmeal. I call that nothing, said the inspector. The question that we have to got to settle is not what refreshments had the deceased been taken, but what was the cause of his death? Did he commit suicide? Or was he killed by accident? Or was there any foul play? I beg your pardon, said Thorndyke. The questions that remain to be settled are who killed the deceased and with what motive. The others are already answered as far as I'm concerned. The inspector stared in sheer amazement, not unmixed with incredulity. "'You haven't been long coming to a conclusion, sir,' he said. "'No, it's a pretty obvious case of murder,' said Thornlike. "'As to the motive, the deceased was a diamond merchant, and is believed to have had a quantity of stones about his person. I should suggest that you search the body.' The inspector gave vent to an exclamation of disgust. Oh, "'I see,' he said. "'It was just a guess on your part. The dead man was a diamond merchant and had valuable property about him, therefore he was murdered.' He drew himself up, and regarding Thorndyke with a stern reproach, added, "'But you must understand, sir, that this is a judicial inquiry, not a prize competition in a penny paper. But as to searching the body, that is what I principally came for.' He ostentatiously turned his back on us, and proceeded systematically to turn out the dead man's pockets, laying the articles, as he removed them, on the box by the side of the handbag and umbrella. While he was thus occupied, Thorndyke looked over the body generally, paying special attention to the soles of the boots which, to the inspector's undissembled amusement, he very thoroughly examined with the lens. "'I should have thought, sir, that his feet were large enough to be seen with the naked eye,' was his comment. "'But, perhaps,' he added with a sly glance at the station-master, "'you are a little near-sighted.' Thorndyke chuckled good-humouredly, and while the officer continued his search, he looked over the articles that had already been laid on the box. The purse and pocket-book he naturally left for the inspector to open, but the reading-glasses pocket-knife and card-case, and other small pocket-articles were subjected to a searching scrutiny. The inspector watched him out of the corner of his eye with furtive amusement, saw him hold up the glasses to the light to estimate their refractive power, peer into the tobacco-pouch, open the cigarette-book, and examine the watermark of the paper, and even inspect the contents of the silver match-box. "'What might you have expected to find in his tobacco-pouch?' the officer asked, laying down a bunch of keys from the dead man's pocket tobacco thorndyke replied stolidly but i did not expect to find fine-cut latakia i don't remember ever having seen pure latakia smoked in cigarettes you do take an interest in things sir said the inspector with a side glance at the stolid station-master i do thorndyke agreed and i note that there are no diamonds among his collection no and we don't know that he had any about him but there's a gold watch and chain a diamond scarf pin and a purse containing he opened it and tipped out its contents into his hand twelve pounds in gold that doesn't much like robbery, does it? What do you say to the murder theory now? My opinion is unchanged, said Thorndyke, and I should like to examine the spot where the body was found. Has the engine been inspected? he added, addressing the station-master. I'll telegraph to Bradfield to have it examined, the official answered. The report has probably come in by now. I'd better see before we start down the line. We emerged from the lamp-room, and at the door found the station-inspector waiting with a telegram. He handed it to the station-master, who read it aloud. The engine has been carefully examined by me. I find a small smear of blood on the near-leading wheel, and a smaller one on next wheel following. No other marks. He glanced questioningly at Thorndyke, who nodded and replied. It will be interesting to see if the line tells the same tale. The station-master looked puzzled and was apparently about to ask for an explanation, but the inspector, who had carefully pocketed the dead man's property, was impatient to start, and accordingly, when Thorndyke had repackaged his case and had, at his own request, been furnished with a lantern, we set off down the permanent way, Thorndyke carrying the light, and I the indispensable green case. "'I'm a little in the dark about this affair,' I said, when we had allowed the two officials to draw ahead out of earshot. "'You came to a conclusion remarkably quickly.' 
what was it that so immediately determined the opinion of murder as against suicide twas a small matter but very conclusive replied thorndyke you noticed a small scalp wound above the left temple it was a glancing wound and might easily have been made by the engine but the wound had bled and it had bled for an appreciable time there were two streams of blood from it and in both the blood was firmly clotted and partially dried but the man had been decapitated and this wound if inflicted by the engine must have been made after the decapitation since it was not on the side most distant from the engine as it approached now a decapitated head does not bleed therefore this wound was inflicted before the decapitation but not only had the wound bled the blood trickled down in two streams at right angles to one another first in the order of time as shown by the appearance of the stream it had trickled down the side of the face and dropped on the collar the second stream ran from the wound to the back of the head now you know jervis there are no exceptions to the law of gravity if the blood ran down the face towards the chin the face must have been upright at the time and if the blood trickled from the front to the back of the head the head must have been horizontal and face upwards but the man when he was seen by the engine driver was lying face downwards the only possible inference is that when the wound was inflicted the man was in the upright position standing or sitting and that subsequently and while he was still alive he lay on his back for a sufficiently long time for the blood to have trickled to the back of his head i see i was a duffer not to have reasoned this out for myself i remarked contritely quick observations and rapid inference come by practice replied thorndyke what did you notice about the face i thought there were some strong suggestions of asphyxia undoubtedly said thorndyke it was the face of a suffocated man you must have noticed too that the tongue was very distinctly swollen and that on the inside of the upper lip were deep indentations made by the teeth as well as one or two slight wounds obviously caused by heavy pressure on the mouth and now observe how completely these facts and inferences agree with those from the scalp wound if we knew that the deceased had received a blow on the head had struggled with his assailant and had been finally borne down and suffocated we should look for precisely those signs which we have found by the way what was it that you found wedged between the teeth i did not get a chance to look through the microscope ah said thorndyke there we not only get confirmation but we carry our inferences a stage further the object was a little tuft of some textile fabric under the microscope i found it to consist of several different fibres differently dyed the bulk of it consisted of wool fibres dyed crimson but there were also cotton fibres dyed blue and a few which looked like jute dyed yellow it was obviously a partly coloured fabric and must have been part of a woman's dress though the presence of the jute is much more suggestive of a curtain or rug of inferior quality and its importance is that if it is not part of an article of clothing then it must have come from an article of furniture and furniture suggests a habitation that doesn't seem very conclusive i objected it is not but it is valuable corroboration of what of the suggestion offered by the soles of the dead man's boots i examined them most minutely and could find no trace of sand gravel or earth in spite of the fact that he must have crossed fields and rough land to reach the place where he was found what i did find was fine tobacco ash a charred mark as if a cigar or cigarette had been trodden on several crumbs of biscuit and on a projecting brad some coloured fibres apparently from a carpet the manifest suggestion is that the man was killed in a house with a carpeted floor and carried from thence to the railway i was silent for some moments well as i knew thorndyke i was completely taken by surprise a sensation indeed that i experienced anew every time that i accompanied him on one of his investigations his marvellous power of coordinating apparently insignificant facts of arranging them into an ordered sequence and making them tell a coherent story was a phenomenon that i never got used to every exhibition of it astonished me afresh if your inferences are correct i said the problem is practically solved there must be an abundant trace inside the house the only question is which house is it quite so replied thorndyke that is the question and a very difficult question it is a glance at that interior doubtless cleared up the whole mystery but how are we to get to that glance we cannot enter houses speculatively to see if they present traces of a murder at present our clue breaks off abruptly the other end of it is in some unknown house and if we cannot join up the two ends our problem remains unsolved for the question is you remember who killed oscar brodsky then what do you propose to do i asked the next stage of the inquiry is to connect some particular house with this crime to that end i can only gather up all available facts and consider each in all its possible bearings 
if I cannot establish any such connection, then the inquiry will have failed, and we shall have to make a fresh start, say at Amsterdam, if it turns out that Brodsky really had diamonds on his person, as I have no doubt he had. Here our conversation was interrupted by arrival at the spot where the body had been found. The stationmaster had halted, and he and the inspector were now examining the near rail by the light of the lanterns. Remarkably little blood about, said the former. I've seen a good many accidents of this kind, and there's never been a lot of blood, both on the engine and on the road. It's very curious. Thorndyke glanced at the rail with but slight attention. That question had ceased to interest him. But the light of his lantern flashed onto the ground at the side of the track, a loose, gravelly soil mixed with fragments of chalk, and from thence to the soles of the inspector's boots, which were displayed as he knelt by the rail. You observe, Jervis, he said in a low voice, and I nodded. The inspector's boot soles were covered with adherent particles of gravel and conspicuously marked by the chalk on which he had trodden. "'You haven't found the hat, I suppose?' Thorndyke asked, stooping to pick up a short piece of string that lay on the ground at the side of the track. "'No,' replied the inspector. "'But it can't be far off. You seem to have found another clue, sir,' he added with a grin, glancing at the piece of string. "'Who knows?' said Thorndyke. "'A short end of white twine with a green strand in it. It may tell us something later. At any rate, we'll keep it.' and taking from his pocket a small tin box containing among other things a number of seed envelopes he slipped the string into one of the latter and scribbled a note in pencil on the outside the inspector watched his proceedings with an indulgent smile and then returned to his examination of the track in which thorndyke now joined i suppose the poor chap was near-sighted the officer remarked indicating the remains of the shattered spectacles that might account for his having strayed on to the line possibly said thorndyke he had already noticed the fragments scattered over a sleeper and the adjacent ballast and now once more produced his collecting-box from which he took another seed envelope would you have me a pair of four-steps jervis he said and perhaps you wouldn't mind taking a pair yourself and helping me to gather up these fragments as i complied the inspector looked up curiously there wasn't any doubt about these spectacles belong to the deceased is there he asked he certainly wore spectacles for i saw the mark on his nose still there is no harm in verifying the fact said thorndyke and he added to me in a lower tone pick up every particle you can find jervis it may be most important i don't quite see how i said groping amongst the shingle for the light of the lantern in search of the tiny splinters of glass don't you returned thorndyke well look at these fragments some of them are a fair size but many of them on the sleeper are mere grains and consider their number obviously the condition of the glass does not agree with the circumstances in which we find it these are thick concave spectacle lenses broken into a great number of minute fragments now how are they broken not merely by falling evidently such a lens when it is dropped breaks into a small number of large pieces nor were they broken by the wheel passing over them for they would then have been reduced to fine powder and that powder would have been visible on the rail which it is not spectacle frames you may remember presented the same incongruity they were battered and damaged more than they would have been by falling, but not nearly so much as they would have been if the wheel had passed over them. What do you suggest, then? I asked. The appearances suggest that the spectacles had been trodden on, but if the body was carried here, the probability is that the spectacles were carried here, too, and that they were then already broken, for it is more likely that they were trodden on during the struggle than that the murder trod on them after bringing them here, hence the importance of picking up every fragment but why i inquired rather foolishly i must admit because if when we have picked up every fragment that we can find there are still remaining missing a large portion of the lenses then we can reasonably expect that would tend to support our hypothesis and we might find the missing remainder elsewhere if on the other hand we find as much of the lenses as we could expect to find we must conclude that they were broken on this spot while we were conducting our search the two officials were circling round with their lanterns in quest of the missing hat and when we had at length picked up the last fragment and a careful search even aided by a lens failed to reveal any other we could see their lanterns moving like will-o'-the-wisps some distance down the line we may as well see what we have got before our friends come back said thorndyke glancing at the twinkling light lay the case down on the grass by the fence it will serve for a table i did so and thorndyke taking a letter from his pocket opened it spread it out flat on the case securing it with a couple of heavy stones although the night was quite calm then he tipped the contents of the seed envelope out on the paper and carefully spreading out the pieces of glass looked at them for some moments in silence and as he looked there stole over his face a very curious expression with sudden eagerness he began picking out the large fragments and laying them on two visiting cards which he had taken from his card-case rapidly and with wonderful deftness 
he fitted the pieces together and as the reconstituted lenses began gradually to take shape on their cards i looked on with growing excitement for something in my colleague's manner told me that we were on the verge of a discovery at length the two ovals of glass lay on their respective cards complete save for one or two small gaps and the little heap that remained consisted of fragments so minute as to render further reconstruction impossible then thorndyke leaned back and laughed softly this is certainly an unlooked-for result said he what is i asked don't you see my dear fellow there's too much glass we have almost completely built up the broken lenses and the fragments that are left over are considerably more than are required to fill up the gaps i looked at the little heap of small fragments and saw at once that it was as he had said there was a surplus of small pieces it is very extraordinary i said what do you think can be the explanation the fragments will probably tell us he replied if we asked them intelligently he lifted the paper and the two cards carefully on to the ground and opening the case took out the little microscope in which he fitted the lowest power objective and eyepiece having a combined magnification of only ten diameters then he transferred the minute fragments of glass to a slide and having arranged the lantern as a microscope lamp commenced his examination ha he exclaimed presently the plot thickens there is too much glass and yet too little that is to say there are only one or two fragments here that belong to the spectacles not nearly enough to complete the building up of the lenses the remainder consists of a soft uneven moulded glass easily distinguished from the clear hard optical glass these foreign fragments are all curved as if they had formed part of a cylinder and are i should say portions of a wine-glass or tumbler he moved the slide once or twice and then continued we are in luck jervis here is a fragment with two little diverging lines etched on it evidently the points of an eight-rayed star and here is another with three points the ends of three rays this enables us to reconstruct the vessel perfectly it was a clear thin glass probably a tumbler decorated with scattered stars i dare say you know the pattern sometimes there is an ornamented band in addition but generally the stars form the only decoration have a look at the specimen i had just applied my eye to the microscope when the station-master and the inspector came up our appearance seated on the ground with the microscope between us was too much for the police officer's gravity and he laughed long and joyously you must excuse me gentlemen he said apologetically but really you know to an old hand like myself it does look a little well you know, i dare say a microscope is a very interesting and amusing thing but it doesn't get you much forwarder in a case like this does it perhaps not replied thorndyke by the way where did you find the hat after all we haven't found it the inspector replied then we must help you to continue the search said thorndyke if you will wait a few moments we will come with you he poured a few drops of xylol balsam on the cards to fix the reconstituted lenses to their supports and then packing them and the microscope in the case announced that he was ready to start is there any village or hamlet near he asked the station-master none nearer than caulfield it's about half a mile from here and where is the nearest road there's an half-made road that runs past a house of about three hundred yards from here it belonged to a building estate that was never built there was a footpath from it to the station are there any other houses near no that was the only house for half a mile round and there's no other road near here then the probability is that brodsky approached the railway from that direction as he was found on that side of the permanent way the inspector agreed with his view as we all set off slowly towards the house piloted by the station-master and searching the ground as we went the wasteland over which we passed was covered with patches of docks and nettles through each of which the inspector kicked his way searching with feet and lantern for the missing hat a walk of three hundred yards brought us to a low wall enclosing a garden beyond which we could see a small house and here we halted while the inspector waded into a large bed of nettles beside the wall and kicked vigorously suddenly there came a clinking sound mingled with objurgations and the inspector hopped out holding one foot and soliloquizing profanely i wonder what sort of fool put that thing like that in a bed of nails he exclaimed stroking the injured foot thorndyke picked the object up and held it in the light of a lantern displaying a piece of three-quarter inch rolled iron bar about a foot long doesn't seem to have been here very long he observed examining it closely there's hardly any rust on it been here long enough for me growled the inspector and i like to bang it on the head of the blight that put it there callously indifferent to the inspector's sufferings thorndyke continued calmly to examine the bar at length resting his lantern on the wall he produced his pocket lens with which he resumed his investigation proceeding that so exasperated the inspector that the afflicted official limped off in dudgeon followed by the station-master and we heard him presently rapping at the front door of the house Give me a slide jervis with a drop of farrant on it said thorndyke 
there are some fibres sticking to this bar. I prepared the slide, and having handed it to him, together with a cover glass, a pair of forceps, and a needle, set up the microscope on the wall. I'm sorry for the inspector, Thorndyke remarked with his eye applied to the little instrument. That was a lucky kick for us. Just take a look at the specimen. I did so, and having moved the slide about until I had seen the whole of the object, I gave my opinion. Red wool fibres, blue cotton fibres, and some yellow vegetable fibres that look like jute. Yes, said Thorndyke. The same combination of fibres as that which we found from the dead man's teeth, and probably from the same source. This bar has probably been wiped on that very curtain or rug with which poor Brodsky was stifled. We will place it on the wall for future reference, and meanwhile, by hook or by crook, we must get into that house. There is much too plain a hint to be disregarded. Hastily repacking the case, we hurried to the front of the house, where we found the two officials looking rather vaguely up the unmade road. There's a light on in the house, said the inspector. There's no one at home. I've knocked a dozen times, got no answer. Don't see what we were hanging about here for at all. The house probably close to where the body was found, and we shall find it in the morning. Thorndyke made no reply, but entering the garden, stepped up the path, and having knocked gently at the door, stooped and listened attentively at the keyhole. "'I'll tell you, there's no one in the house, sir,' said the inspector, irritably, and as Thorndyke continued to listen, he walked away, muttering angrily. As soon as he was gone, Thorndyke flashed his lantern over the door, the threshold, the path, and the small flower-beds, and from one of the latter I presently saw him stoop and pick something up. "'Here is a highly instructive object, Jervis,' he said, coming out to the gate and displaying a cigarette of which only half an inch had been smoked. "'How instructive?' I asked. "'What do you learn from it?' "'Many things,' he replied. "'It has been lit and thrown away unsmoked. "'That indicates a sudden change of purpose. "'It was thrown away at the entrance to the house, "'almost certainly by someone entering it. "'That person was probably a stranger, "'or he would have taken it in with him, "'but he had not expected to enter the house, "'or he would not have lit it. "'These are the general suggestions. "'Now, as to the particular ones, "'the paper of the cigarette is the kind known as the zigzag brand. "'The very conspicuous watermark is quite easy to see.' Now Brodsky's cigarette-book was a zigzag book, so called from the way in which the papers pull out. But let us see what the tobacco is like. With a pin from his coat, he hooked out from the unburned end a wisp of dark, dirty brown tobacco, which he held up for my inspection. Fine cut latakia, I pronounced without hesitation. Very well, said Thorndyke. Here is a cigarette made of an unusual tobacco similar to that in Brodsky's pouch, and wrapped in an unusual paper similar to those in Brodsky's cigarette-book. With due regard to the fourth rule of the syllogism, I suggested this cigarette was made by Oscar Brodsky. But, nevertheless, we will look for corroborative detail. What is that? I asked. You may have noticed that Brodsky's match-box contained round wooden vestas, which are also rather unusual. As he must have lighted the cigarette within a few steps of the gate, he ought to be able to find the match with which he lighted it. Let us try up the road in the direction from which he would probably have approached. We walked very slowly up the road, searching the ground with a lantern, and we had hardly gone a dozen paces when I spied a match lying on the rough path and eagerly picked it up. It was a round wooden vesta. Thorndyke examined it with interest, and having deposited it with the cigarette in his collecting box, turned to retrace his steps. There is now, Jervis, no reasonable doubt that Brodsky was murdered in that house. We have succeeded in connecting that house with the crime, and now we have got to force an entrance and join up the other clues. We walked quickly back to the rear of the premises, where we found the inspector conversing disconsolately with the stationmaster. "'I think, sir,' said the former, "'we'd better go back now. "'In fact, I don't see what we came here for, "'but here, I say, sir, you mustn't do that.' "'For Thorndyke, without a word of warning, "'had sprung up lightly and thrown one of his long legs over the wall. "'I can't allow you to enter private premises, sir,' "'continued the inspector, "'but Thorndyke quietly dropped down on the inside "'and turned to face the officer over the wall. "'Now listen to me, inspector,' said he. "'I have good reasons for believing that the dead man, Brodsky, "'has been in this house. "'In fact, I am prepared to swear on information to that effect.' but time is precious. We must follow the scent whilst it is hot, and I am not proposing to break into the house off-hand. I merely wish to examine the dustbin. The dustbin? gasped the inspector. Well, you really are a most extraordinary gentleman. What do you expect to find in the dustbin? I am looking for a broken tumbler or wine-glass. It is a thin glass vessel, decorated with a pattern of small eight-pointed stars. It may be in the dustbin, or it may be inside the house. The inspector hesitated, but Thorndyke's confident manner had evidently impressed him. "'We well, can soon see what's in the dustbin,' he said. "'Thou what in creation a broken tumbler has to do with the case is more than I can understand. However, here goes.' He sprang up onto the wall, and as he dropped down into the garden, the station-master and I followed. 
Thorndyke lingered a few moments by the gate examining in the ground, while the two officials hurried up the path. Finding nothing of interest, however, he walked towards the house, looking keenly about him as he went, but we were hardly halfway up the path when we heard the voice of the inspector calling excitedly. "'Here you are, sir, this way,' he sang out, and as we hurried forward, we suddenly came on the two officials standing over the small rubbish heap and looking the picture of astonishment. The glare of their lanterns illuminated the heap and showed us the scattered fragments of a thin glass star pattern tumbler. I can't imagine how you guessed it was here, sir, said the inspector, with a newborn respect in his tone. Nor what you're going to do with it now you've found it. It's merely another link in the chain of evidence, said Thorndyke, taking a pair of forceps from the case and stooping over the heap. Perhaps we shall find something out. He picked up several small fragments of glass, looked at them closely, and dropped them again. Suddenly his eye caught a small splinter at the base of the heap. Seizing it with the forceps, he held it close to his eye in the strong lamplight, and, taking out his lens, examined it with minute attention. Yes, he said at length, this is what I was looking for. Let me have those two cards, Jervis. I produced the two visiting cards with the reconstructed lenses stuck to them, and laying them on the lid of the case, threw the light of the lantern on them. Thorndyke looked at them intently for some time, and from them to the fragment that he held. Then, turning to the inspector, he said, You saw me pick up this splinter of glass. Yes, sir, replied the officer. And you saw where we found these spectacle glasses, and know whose they were? Yes, sir, where the dead man's spectacles, and he found them where the body had been. Very well, said Thorndyke. Now observe. And as the two officials craned forward with parted lips, he laid the little splinter in a gap in one of the lenses, and then gave it a gentle push forward. When it occupied the gap perfectly, joining edge to edge with the adjacent fragments and rendering that portion of the lens complete. "'My God!' exclaimed the inspector. "'How on earth did you know?' "'I must explain that later,' said Thorndyke. "'Meanwhile, we had better have a look inside the house. I expect to find there a cigarette, possibly a cigar, which has been trodden on, some wholemeal biscuits, possibly a wooden vesta, and perhaps even a missing hat.' At the mention of the hat, the inspector stepped eagerly to the back door, but finding it bolted, he tried the window. This also was securely fastened, and on Thorndyke's advice we went round to the front door. "'This door is locked too,' said the inspector. "'I'm afraid you'll have to break in. It's a nuisance, though.' "'Have a look at the window,' suggested Thorndyke. The officer did so, struggling vainly to undo the patent catch with his pocket-knife. "'It's no good,' he said, coming back to the door. "'Wish left,' he broke off with an astonished stare. The door stood open, and Thorndyke was putting something in his pocket. "'Your friend doesn't waste much time even in picking a lock,' he remarked to me, as we followed Thorndyke into the house. But his reflections were soon merged in a new surprise. Thorndyke had preceded us into a small sitting-room, dimly lighted by a hanging lamp turned down low. As we entered, he turned up the light and glanced about the room. A whisky bottle was on the table, with a siphon, a tumbler, and a biscuit-box. Pointing to the latter, Thorndyke said to the inspector, "'See what is in that box.' The inspector raised the lid and peeped in. The station-master peered over his shoulder, and then both stared at Thorndyke. "'How in the name of goodness did you know that there were old mill biscuits in the house, sir?' exclaimed the station-master. "'You'd be disappointed if I told you,' replied Thorndyke. "'But look at this.' He pointed to the hearth, where lay a flattened half-smoked cigarette and a round wooden vesta. The inspector gazed at these objects in silent wonder, while, as to the station-master, he continued to stare at Thorndyke with what I can only describe as superstitious awe. "'You have the dead man's property with you, I believe?' said my colleague. "'Yes,' replied the inspector. "'I put the things in my pocket for safety.' "'Then,' said Thorndyke, picking up the flattened cigarette, "'let us have a look at his tobacco-pouch.' As the officer produced and opened the pouch, Thorndyke neatly cut open the cigarette with his sharp pocket-knife. "'Now,' said he, what kind of tobacco is in the pouch? The inspector took out a pinch, looked at it, and smelt it distastefully. One of those stinking tobaccos, he said. They put them in mixtures, latakia, I think. And what is this? asked Thorndyke, pointing to the open cigarette. Same stuff, undoubtedly, replied the inspector. And now let us see his cigarette papers, said Thorndyke. The little book, or rather packet, for it consisted of separated papers, was produced from the officer's pocket, and a sample paper abstracted. Thorndyke laid the half-burnt paper beside it, and the inspector, having examined the two, held them up to the light. "'There isn't much chance of mistake in that zigzag watermark,' he said. "'This cigarette was made by the deceased. There can't be the shadow of a doubt.' "'One more point,' said Thorndyke, laying the burnt wooden vesta on the table. "'You have his matchbox.' 
the inspector brought forth a little silver casket opened it and compared the wooden vestas that it contained with the burnt end then he shut the box with a snap you've proved it up to the hilt said he we could only find the hat we shall have a complete case i'm not sure we haven't found the hat said thorndyke you notice that something besides coal has been burned in the grate the inspector ran eagerly to the fireplace and began with feverish hands to pick out the remains of the extinct fire the cinders are still warm he said now certainly not all coal cinders there's been wood burned here on top of the coal and these little black lumps are neither coal nor wood and may quite possibly be the remains of a burnt hat but lord who can tell you can put together the pieces of broken spectacle glasses but you can't build up an hat out of a few cinders he held out a handful of the little black spongy cinders and looked ruefully at thorndyke who took them from him and laid them out on the sheet of paper we can't reconstitute the hat certainly my friend agreed but we may be able to ascertain the origin of these remains they may not be cinders of a hat after all he lit a wax match and taking up one of the charred fragments applied the flame to it the cindery mass fused at once with a crackling seething sound emitting a dense smoke and instantly the air became charged with a pungent resinous odour mingled with the smell of burning animal matter smells like varnish the station-master remarked yes shellac said thorndyke so the first test gives a positive result the next test will take more time he opened the green case and took from it a little flask fitted for marsh's arsenic test with a safety funnel and escape tube a small folding tripod a spirit lamp and a disc of asbestos to serve as a sand bath dropping into the flask several of the cindery masses selected after careful inspection he filled it up with alcohol and placed it on the disc which he rested on the tripod then he lighted the spirit lamp underneath and sat down to wait for the alcohol to boil there is one little point that we may as well settle he said presently as the bubbles began to rise in the flask give me a slide with a drop of fallant on it jervis i prepared the slide while thorndyke with a pair of forceps picked out a tiny wisp from the tablecloth i fancy we have seen this fabric before he remarked as he laid the little pinch of fluff in the mounting fluid and slipped the slide onto the stage of the microscope yes he continued looking into the eyepiece here are our old acquaintances the red wool fibres the blue cotton and the yellow jute we must label this at once or we may confuse it with the other specimens have you any idea the deceased man is deaf the inspector asked yes replied thorndyke i take it that the murderer enticed him into this room and gave him some refreshments the murderer sat in the chair in which he was sitting brodsky sat in that small armchair then i imagine the murderer attacked him with that iron bar that you found among the nettles failed to kill him at the first stroke struggled with him and finally suffocated him with the tablecloth by the way there is just one more point you recognize this piece of string he took from his collecting box the little end of twine that had been picked up by the line the inspector nodded look behind you you will see where it came from the officer turned sharply and his eye lighted on a string box on the mantelpiece he lifted it down and thorndyke drew out from it a length of white twine with one green strand which he compared with the piece in his hand green stranded it makes the identification fairly certain he said of course the string was used to secure the umbrella and handbag he could not have carried them in his hand encumbered as he was with the corpse but i expect our other specimen is ready now he lifted the flask off the tripod and giving it a vigorous shake examined the contents through his lens the alcohol had now become dark brown in colour and was noticeably thicker and more syrupy in consistence i think we have enough here for a rough test said he selecting a pipette and a slide from the case he dipped the former into the flask and having sucked up a few drops of the alcohol from the bottom held the pipette over the slide in which he allowed the contained fluid to drop laying a cover glass in the little pool of alcohol he put the slide on the microscope stage and examined it attentively while we watched him in expectant silence at length he looked up and addressing the inspector said do you know what felt hats are made of oh, i can't say that i do sir replied the officer well the better quality hats are made of rabbits and hares wool the soft underfur you know cemented together with shellac now there is very little doubt that these cinders contain shellac and with the microscope i found a number of small hairs of a rabbit i have therefore little hesitation in saying that these cinders are the remains of a hard felt hat and as the hairs do not appear to be dyed i should say it was a grey hat at this moment our conclave was interrupted by hurried footsteps on the garden path and as we turned with one account an elderly woman burst into the room 
she stood for a moment in mute astonishment and then looked from one door to the other demanding who are you and what are you doing here the inspector rose i'm a police officer madam said he i can't give you any further information just now but if you'll excuse me Austin, who are you i'm mr ickler's housekeeper she replied uh, mr ickler are you expecting him home shortly no i'm not was the curt reply mr ickler is away from home just now he left this evening by the boat train for amsterdam asked thorndyke i believe so i don't see what business it is of yours the housekeeper answered i thought he might perhaps be a diamond broker or merchant said thorndyke a good many of them travel by that train so he is said the woman at least he has something to do with diamonds ah oh, well we must be going jervis said thorndyke we have finished here and we have to find a hotel or inn can i have a word with you inspector the officer now entirely humble and reverent followed us into the garden to receive thorndyke's parting advice you had better take possession of the house at once and get rid of the housekeeper nothing must be removed preserve those cinders and see that the rubbish heap is not disturbed and above all don't have the rooms swept an officer will be sent to relieve you with a friendly good-night we went on our way guided by the station-master and here our connection with the case came to an end Hitler, whose Christian name turned out to be Silas, was, it is true, arrested as he stepped ashore from the steamer, and a packet of diamonds subsequently identified as the property of Oscar Brodsky found upon his person. But he was never brought to trial, for on the return voyage he contrived to elude his guards for an instant as the ship was approaching the English coast, and it was not until three days later, when a handcuffed body was cast off on the lonely shore by Oxfordness, that the authorities knew the fate of Silas Hitler inappropriate and dramatic end to a singular and yet typical case said thorndyke as he put down the newspaper i hope it has enlarged your knowledge jervis and enabled you to form one or two useful corollaries i prefer to hear you sing the medical legal doxology i answered turning upon him like the proverbial worm and grinning derisively which the worm does not i know you do he retorted with mock gravity and i lament your lack of mental initiative however the points of this case illustrates are these first the danger of delay the vital importance of instant action before that frail and fleeting thing that we call a clue has time to evaporate a delay of a few hours would have left us with hardly a single datum second the necessity of pursuing the most trivial clue to an absolute finish as illustrated by the spectacle third the urgent need of a trained scientist to aid the police and last he concluded with a smile we learn never to go abroad without the invaluable green case End of section two.